0: Hello and welcome to episode 12 of The Sizzle. Today I'm talking to Aisha who has written a book called Unexpected Leaders. And it's a really interesting book which looks at different case studies of leadership and leaders who didn't necessarily typify what you might imagine if you think of leadership. And it also includes some really useful applications to life and ways for us to think about ourselves in terms of leadership and the episode is a great conversation where we think about what brought Aisha to the point where she thought this book would be useful and I can't wait to hear what you think so let's jump into it. So Aisha hello. Hey
1: Joe.
0: Um, You're hosting me uh, which is which is lovely and I just had to stop you mid sentence because I was like we need to talk about that on tape so maybe if you could just describe your work at the moment and then uh slip into what you were talking about just now in terms of the project
1: yeah okay so my work um I work part-time for a think tank uh and I was going to say the name but we we might change it soon um but yeah so I work for an educational think tank called LKMK and for I was, yeah, for now. That's what it's called for now. Um and I was just saying like a project that I'm that I'm working on is um we're doing kind of a series of twelve films um aimed at newly qualified teachers and each film um is basically around a particular condition, so say mm-hmm. dyspraxia, um autism, etc. etc. And it's like uh, there'll really be short films where that teacher can look at it and be online and think, okay, uh, what do I need to know about this condition? And then yeah. also the way we're doing it's kind of a bit like a mini documentary. So, um, just the central idea is around a particular child in a school oh, nice. who had that condition, mm-hmm. um, and looking at how they could be helped their perspective, but also kind of some expert input as well.
0: Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know, that was really nearly my thesis. So I, I, I was basically thinking along the same kind of lines. Like, it really <clears throat> is, like, sad and surprising to me that some teachers do not, they, they just don't know much about SCM. I, and that and that's fine. But then they might have a class, they might have many classes, and, and it's kind of, it's you know, it's unfair on multiple levels, but, but, you know, to the teacher as well as the children. And I was thinking, surely there is... Some way that educational psychologists can support with initial teacher training, just in terms of, you know, once you find out the area you're going to be in, or, you know, when you're on a placement, provide some kind of, you know, parachuting of knowledge. And um, in the end, I was up at Welsh Mountain and my partner was like, Do you love that idea? <laughs> and I was like, I do like it. I don't love it. So I ended up doing it on boxing, but um, I'm glad to know that you're,
1: <laughs> you're doing the work. Yeah, it really
0: was. <laughs> the total change. I like it, but, um, but I don't love it. Boxing. <laughs> yeah. I was like, what do I love? Okay, boxing.
1: Ah, that's great. Mm. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, so yeah, so it's interesting. I like it because uh, I have not really done that much work to do with SEND. Like when I was in schools, mm. so I managed the same co. Mm. Um, So that's kind of the most. And but in my personal capacity, I'm quite into creative stuff. Like I, um, I've had to go kind of making a documentary myself and I kind of like interviewing people. So I'm interested in that kind of creative element mm. and how it can be used to um, like communicate research or to help people, help other people in mm. detective ways. Yeah. Um,
0: so, yeah. And I, I really appreciate the fact that the films you're describing are centred around a person because quite often especially in a busy school context you know you end up hearing staff talking about conditions and not people and um and that can be quite difficult so to humanize it like that i think it's a really lovely approach
1: i think it's really important so it's kind of in terms of my whole thing is uh i kind of love storytelling so i love storytelling it's not that obvious because my background is quite geeky and sciencey, but I love storytelling. I'm really interested in learning through other people's stories. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we were talking about um, my podcast. I love podcasts, but I tend to like the ones that interview based because I want to hear about somebody and then Mm -hmm. apply it to my own life or whatever. Yeah. Um, And, you know, the nice thing about this is it's, it's kind of research-based, but not as hardcore research as we normally would do. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the kind of stuff that I've worked on, um, the projects that I've been part of are ones where we've got a research basis, but also we're looking at kind of people's personal histories as well and case Mm -hmm. studies. And like, I love that because I think it brings it to life much, much more. And you're able to connect with it more. Like people don't, as much as we like to think that we're rational and logical is that's actually not what changes people's minds. It's not really. You have to humanize things. I I believe. Yeah. So,
0: yeah, I, I had a similar kind of change in, in me when I started my doctorate. I think I went in being like statistics is research. And, and then throughout the process, discovered all these qualitative methods and was like, wow, this is really impactful. And, Rich and and ended up doing a completely qualitative thesis and I'm totally convinced by that now. It's really where I'm at, you know. And um, we we can talk about your book in a bit, but one thing that I really loved about it was the kind of the different levels of, of people in there. So there's you reflecting on yourself as what you're like, you sharing things about you, and then also the the, ca- the not characters and uh, interviewees and participants in there. So there were loads of different layers of, of personality in there, um, and it I, I kind of was thinking it, it has a very rich story like quality, but it also has an academic edge. You know, it, it reminded me the way that it's formatted of a piece of academic research as well, and it, and it kind of was doing both. Um so hearing you describe, you know, what you're interested in, also your background and the work, it, it makes total sense to me that you've produced this thing.
1: It's really interesting actually, because um so my background is kind of like maths and sciences, so my degree was mechanical engineering. Mm. Um and at school, like I I did quite enjoy English, but <laughs> I don't know, Caribbean parents. I remember like saying to my dad I might do English literature. My dad's like, you can read at home, <laughs> like why? <laughs> <laughs> what? What? you can read books at home yeah. like, why are you doing this basically so um yeah uh that got ditched and It was uh, engineering <laughs> but then um i got kind of into creative stuff kind of by accident, i think really so i'd always love music and that um but via lots of different reasons i eventually got into photography um okay. yeah and uh but what i wanted to do was um it was at the time that digital was kind of... People were just starting to switch properly to digital cameras, digital mm-hmm. whatever. And I wanted to have something to do. So what I started doing was I um, <coughs> set up a blog, just mm. because I was like, otherwise there'll be these photographs just sitting on my computer doing nothing, right? I didn't see the point of that. I what to year was this? So this would have been about 2011. Okay. 2010, 2011. So it would have been on Blogger, which I don't even know if Blogger a anything now. But um, yeah, so... Uh and it was just so I took photos and I'd write a bit about it. So I'm like a self-taught photographer. Um and at the time I was into like a they call it street photography, basically just on the street taking pictures of people. Mm-hmm. Um and I'd write little bits to go with it, but just so it just wasn't a load of photos, basically. Mm-hmm. Um so it'd be something like i take some pictures on Dawson High Street and then kind of talk about the story behind the pictures or whatever. Yeah. Um, and then I probably had like 10 people reading it. <laughs> but it was, you know, better than having it sit on my, yeah. on my computer. And um, so then the other kind of like amateur photographers would chat to me and they were like, oh, we really like your writing, actually. And I, it was kind of just an afterthought for me. Oh. Um, so, yeah, so that's kind of, there's probably still a link to it. Now. I haven't added to it for years. Uh, but then I decided, so the way I got into photography was as a way to kind of, kind of manage my mental health, basically. Uh, And I thought, oh, well, this has really helped me. I wonder how other people, what other people do to manage their mental health and to Mm. stay healthy and all that kind of stuff. So I basically just started doing a project, um, uh, which I called Mind Shackles, but basically it was exploring other people who'd experienced depression and what they did as their thing to kind of help them, really. Mm. Uh, And that's kind of how the story approach happened, Mm. um, because initially i was going to take just photographs of them but then by mistake one day or just like on the spur i interviewed one of them and like i recorded it on my iphone and they're like five minutes of audio and i listened to it and i was like oh this is actually really good so i just transcribed exactly what she said Mm. um and then i was like oh this is actually i should do this (laughs) i Mm. should do this um, more deliberately for all of them and that's kind of how it is so it's and then I I revisited each person kind of over time, so some of them I maybe met four or five times over a year or two, and kind of followed up on their story. Wow. Um, yeah, so it was really interesting. I just kind of that made sense to me, mm. and I was inspired by like a, another like a guy um, that I'd met online. His um, uh, like his project is called Small Town Inertia, but he tells the story of his tiny little town in Norfolk. And trying to marginalise people in it, and I was really inspired by how we'd done that. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's basically how the storytelling element came about. Um, and from that, the book came out actually. Because mm. um, my publisher was like, oh, that's an interesting idea. How might you, what can we do with it?
0: I love that art, art came from art. You, were, you discovered your writing through your photos. Yeah. <laughs> Did you take the photos in the book? Yeah, I took all the photos nice. in the book. I didn't realise that. Yeah. Um, I you made me think immediately of um, Humans of New York mm. um, because originally I don't even know when I first saw it, but you know I saw a striking portrait, and then I and then I flippantly opened up the the text and started reading, and it was deep, and I and I was I was moved, you know, and 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 actually since then I, I'll sometimes be careful about where I read it because you know you can get some really kind of intimate emotive stories there Um, but it's the words that you know, even though it's on Instagram it's the words that are really powerful about that Um, in fact so so I've mentioned humans in New York but I need to just mention this other one because I was talking to Will DeGroote about masculinity and he mentioned a channel called Mixed Race Faces that he featured on and it's about it's kind of imagine humans in New York, but it's about people with mixed heritage and them talking about their their story. Um, so just at any point that I can mention, it, I'd like to mention it because uh, yeah, cool. I think it's kind of cool, yeah.
1: Yeah, I've got um, so obviously, I, I used to be quite into photography, and uh, one photo book I've got is called Father Figure by like an American photographer, maybe, maybe called um, Zun Lee. Basically, his story is that he um, he's like mixed, uh, Chinese or black heritage, but he didn't know that when he was growing up. Um, But then he found out that basically that his dad was black and he didn't know. And then he started, he wanted to kind of explore the like black father um, idea. Mm. Um, So it's a whole kind of photo essay basically around black fatherhood and showing positive images of it. It's beautiful actually. It's Mm. such a nice book and just really interesting. He's like an interesting guy. I think he's a doctor by... So that's his day-to-day job, mm. but um, yeah, again, also like a sort of self-taught photographer, and he um, like kind of embedded himself in different families and visited them over time mm. um, and caught like really lovely moments with these dads and their and their children because mm. he wanted to like counteract the the narrative and also like you know, he I don't think he ever met his dad, so he was like, well, I can either get angry about it or I could do something really positive with it. Mm. Um, but yes, yeah, it's, it's really cool.
0: That's really nice. I, I'm really, something that kind of stuck in my head from what you were saying earlier was around the fact that you went back and spoke to the people across a year multiple times. And that to me seems different to like an art project, you know, because I know lots of people that take photos. I, I know less people that theme them in albums, but I know very few that will be like, actually, let me interview these people longitudinally. And that that's interesting that, to me that you decided to do that.
1: Yeah, so I think that's what attracted me about the um Small Town Inertia project. So the, the the concept is like the photographer is he's a guy, um uh just trying to remember, um, Jim Mortram is his name, and he's a carer. So he's in like uh, a fairly you know what Norfolk's like, like fairly remote bit of Norfolk mm-hmm. and um doesn't have loads of money, so he wanted to Kind of detail, people who we don't usually see mm. in photography like photography can, as a lot of artists, can be quite elitist. Um, and also, there's a lot of and I have <laughs> I was gonna say, there's a lot of National Geographic about it, but um, what I'm thinking is there's a lot of kind of uh super privileged people parachuting themselves into a place, mm. um, giving their hot take on it, and then fucking off again. <laughs> like, like okay, oh, we swear on this, yeah, <laughs> um. And, you know, like some really celebrated photographers like I've not got a lot of time for because, mm. uh, like, there's a lot of othering, I feel, mm. which started to really get on my nerves when I got more into photography. Mm. Um, so, you know, like, when you start to look at how a lot of imagery is in photography, is super stereotypical, really, yeah. you know, just too annoying. Um, and, like, yeah, the reason why I said, like, National Geographic in it is because, you know, like the mobile savages, a lot of that kind of stuff, or kind of look at these interesting working class poor people mm. disappearing off. Yeah. So I liked it because he was from that community, um, and he was basically just detailing the characters that he knew. But obviously, he lived there, so he'd come back to them again and again and again. They really trusted him, yeah. and it showed in the quality of the photos and also the narratives that he told. Mm. You could tell they had trusted him, and um, like I moved away from street photography because there's not much interaction. With people in it, like traditionally speaking, there's a lot of, you know, snapping people and then sometimes with or without permission, which is problematic as it is, right? Uh, but I realized what like, I actually started to enjoy when I'd stop people mm. and do street portraits. So a bit like Humans of New York, like mm. I do that and have a chat with them, I realized I really like that. Mm. Like I like that contact. So yeah, I thought it would be interesting to go back, especially for a topic like depression. Now, if someone can seem fine at one point, but maybe you go back and see them again in a few months' time; they're not, or vice versa. Mm. And I wanted to kind of see over time yeah. how how it was. Um, so some people I maybe only saw once or twice, but other people like Andy, for example, um, I kind of documented him for a couple of years and we're still in contact. Mm. Um, think about a few other people as well who I uh, documented over uh, mm. over time and we still in contact with them. Not for that in particular, but kind of suspended it, but then he still know about each other's mm-hmm. lives, which is nice. And, and some of it I did people that I know personally in my own life as well, which was an interesting experience, actually. Got mm. like quite personal stuff that we knew about, but wouldn't necessarily have spoken about before. Mm. Um, but yeah, that was good. I'm really glad I did it.
0: Yeah. And so you you kind of introduced the, the idea of photography as a way to, to um, improve or, or encourage Uh, good mental health can you i mean you might not want to but i'm really interested or curious about how you found it it helps you
1: yeah okay so um photography is an interesting one because you know sometimes you try and pick up a hobby and doesn't quite stick so I'd kind of been interested in photography on and off for some time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was never anything interesting enough that made me want to stick with it, that make any sense. Yeah? So mm-hmm. i would like, yes, fancy camera, meh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> you no, know, like, oh, I did it, it's not, it's not like it. <laughs> the camera's gathering dust. <laughs> you know, like, oh, no, don't like it, no. But then the reason why it's stuck is, so around, when would it have been? 2010, 2011, so around the time that I said to you, I was working in a school, so I was um head of maths in a school not that far from here, actually a bit further up, in Enfield. Um and uh like I basically had like a massive breakdown. <laughs> um it was I don't know how it is now, but it was like bottom in the borough league tables undersubscribed, like you know, every single school you ever know about. Mm. Um, and I was head of maths there, which is you know, quite a lot of um expectation for head of yeah. core subjects the as a teacher. yeah a lot and it and uh I had been there so the way I got the job was I'd moved to that school because um I'd worked with the head teacher there before and he asked me to come and join um but then he left because of various trauma. <laughs> and uh, in the space of the time I was there, which is three years in total, there were three different head teachers. So that gives you a view of what kind of school it is. Um, and uh, yeah, like I had to improve the results in my department. It was the I had gone there as like second department, and then my boss basically went off sick and never came back mm-hmm. um, within like the first term. So that's the kind of general feel mm-hmm. of the school. <laughs> And we, like, technically speaking, I should have been feeling good about stuff because we'd had, like, best ever results, jumped up by um, quite a bit and all that kind of thing, but it'd been at a really, like, too much, just Mm. unsustainable human cost, basically, so for myself and for my team. And I just, we came back in, like, after September, after, like, the best results ever, so when it should have been really good, right? Mm. And I just remember sitting there thinking... Nah, no, so um, when you uh, go back like, in September in schools, um, you'll notice. But there's always a, the kind of spiel that the head teacher gives about here are the results. Uh, this is this is it, and kind of like a pep talk. This is what we're going to do next, etc. Mm-hmm. But this wasn't really a pep talk. Like, I, mm-hmm. What I really heard was um, it's going to be more of the same. Like bear in mind, this would be like a never-ending bit yeah. of a year. <laughs> uh, but then some more because we'd just been taken over by an academy chain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just remember thinking, I can't do this. I can't do it. So I, in essence, that resulted in me having like a massive breakdown. Like I couldn't go into the premises and there'd already been a few signs of not great stuff. So I was signed off work for some time actually. And I, I tried to go back and they, they gave me like a that of return, mm-hmm. and it didn't really work. But, um, in that time, the art teacher, uh, his art. it um, said, "I can come and sit in the back of his room." So, a guy called William, actually lovely man, and uh, yeah, so I did, and I was like, "Well, I can't paint. Like, you teach me to paint. I'd like to have something to do." Because yeah. um, I'd been to see a counsellor, and uh, oddly, I'd gone for art therapy. Like, I was like, "Why not?" And I found okay. it really useful. This wasn't my general style of thing, but I found mm. it quite good to talk about stuff. So I thought I want to learn to paint, and um, you know, this is a useful thing. So he taught me to how to mix things and how to paint. I did loads of abstract stuff, but um, I wasn't very good. <laughs> uh, but I did enjoy it. And also, you know, painting takes up space. So I was thinking, what can I do that is visually mm-hmm. interesting, um, but doesn't take up a lot of space? Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I've always kind of been into photography. Why don't I just do that? Um, and it's easy to kind of... Photography is good because you might not be that good, but the entry bar is low, right? So yeah. you can see a lot of progress quickly and you can just put your camera on and like um, P mode and, and go with it.
0: P and, mode. Yeah. <laughs> you know those yeah. ones, it.
1: So this is before decent uh, smartphone cameras or anything mm. like that. Um, so I knew I could just get going, even if it wasn't that good. Like, now, look at it. stuff I used to do and it was terrible, but it doesn't matter. Um, so that's kind of how I got into photography, really. And I used to... I'd uh, go home... And like after we put the kids, that like my we only have one kid at the time. So after we put my son to bed or whatever, I'd basically just go out walking, go out walking, and I'd take pictures. Um, in the evening, I would do it like almost mm. every day for quite some time. Or like if I was in London, I'd go walking up and down Oxford Street or whatever, just mm. wherever. And like I combine it with exercise. I think that's probably part of what yeah. helped. Without you know having thinking about it now, and I would do that. Um, yeah, probably for about a year or something like that. Oh. And that's how I got into photography really.
0: I, I find that such an interesting story for two reasons. The first one is I got into photography to a much lesser degree than you for a very similar reason in that the bar is quite low. I can't draw. At primary school I would get other people to do drawings for me because I knew I'd like, I know you, Joel <laughs> Leon are good drawers and you can just do it in two seconds. Ah. And, I, and I would not like what I drew because it wasn't good enough. But You know, bog standard P modes can get you some all right stuff really quickly. Um, But I also love it because of the way I'm now imagining you walking down the street taking photos, and it's like the rhythm of walking is quite soothing. But also, I know when I've had, I did photography A level, and during that time I was taking lots of photos, and you do kind of detach from your sense of self a little bit, and you just are seeing. And you start to, for me at least, start to see in photo frames, you know, and I can imagine that that's a really soothing process. And you know, thinking about the psychology of meditation, it's a very similar thing mm-hmm. happening um, in in your brain in terms of you know de- de- deactivation of areas. So I I kind of I really love the way that you self yourself not medicated but you self um soothed with that.
1: Yes, I mean, it was all by... Like, I didn't think very much about it. But reflecting now, like, it's got all the elements, like, as you said, of the Mm -hmm. things that I know I definitely need to do to stay, kind of, mentally healthy. Um, Like, I understand each of the elements now, whereas at that time I wouldn't have understood it. Yeah. So it's kind of, like, I know that I need to do some kind of exercise. Like, I don't like gym or anything, but I like walking. Or I I know that I need to be out in fresh air. Like, Mm -hmm. it had all those elements. And then also, you know, I was... Uh, totally focused on taking photographs of whatever it is, or mm. that kind of thing, and I'd do it for an hour or two, something mm. like that. You know, pretty much every day. Mm. Um, and it was, yeah, like you said, it was kind of meditative, really.
0: Mm. So, I in your book, there's a a person called Malcolm, and it talked about you meeting at Hip Hop Beds.
1: Yeah, do you know Jeffrey.
0: Oh, Matt, Jeffrey is one of the... How can I describe Jeffrey? Um, he's one of the greatest people I haven't met yet.
1: Oh, you'll love him.
0: So he... <laughs> I got into podcasting because I... With a good friend, Youssef, um we did a pilot for the RSA. And we got really excited about getting a series, and we thought we would. And then in the end, their head of podcasting left, a new person came in and had a different vision for stuff. Um... And Jeffrey agreed to be on the pilot, and the date changed, and in the end he couldn't make it, so he almost uh, was involved then. And um, yeah, I love I love his movements in terms of big picture learning. So
1: have you read his book? His book's
0: sick. Whole time, yeah, it's really yes, yes, I've read it, I read it, <laughs> I read so it and I've worked people because it is it's such a good The book. first, thing. do you know what I would just recommend that first page to everybody it's because sick. I remember lying on my bed opening it up and then just closing again because i was like wow this yeah. is this is much more than just some grime songs in a book um so yeah uh big up jeffrey who won down me and uh and then it's on um but yeah hip-hop ed is is something i've seen online and never and never kind of know much about so i kind of like to know a bit about that
1: yeah so hip-hop ed is um is cool it's Uh, there's a US version and a kind of like a UK version. Um, Like hip hop. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And I, hip hop ed, I would describe it as a collection of educators who are into hip hop um, in kind of, I guess, kind of traditional hip hop culture (coughs) um, and the original ideals of hip hop, I guess. um, Who... Are also interesting, kind of challenging the status quo and looking at how they could either use hip hop to do that or kind of the sensibilities of it. Mm. So, um, you know, I was a math teacher; I was never an English teacher or anything like that. So, it wasn't that obvious for me to be able to use it directly. But it's more kind of some of the, you know, um, challenge. It's the first place that I heard about kind of declo decolonizing the curriculum, for mm. example. Some really really interesting thinkers there the, the guy who runs the english version um darren chetty is a philosopher Um so he used to be a teacher but his background is philosophy so there's lots of really interesting discussions there like it's quite possibly the place where i've had the most interesting educational discussions wow. uh it's also the first kind of place where as a teacher i felt really at home with um people who were doing interesting things mm. and talking about things that I felt mattered even though you know I wasn't necessarily someone using hip-hop in my classroom mm-hmm. but more kind of the approach really yeah great bunch of people actually
0: yeah I mean and I totally just from that can understand how the principles of hip-hop are really important in education um, there was a there was a throwaway line uh, in in that part of the book where you talked about liking Biggie and by a kind of Bizarre coincidence I listen to a podcast Called Business Wars mm. And it's kind, of, it's kind of Looks at um, Great rivalries Between companies So It might be You know Sony and Sega Or Pepsi and Coke And They just Have released ones About um, Bad Boy And Death <laughs> <laughs> So on the way here I was literally hearing About Too um, freaking vegan I was like Oh <laughs> This is This is meant to be um, Yeah so that Yeah I do you, I hear that
1: I yeah, I think um, it might not be that obvious to people who are not necessarily into hip hop. But yeah, it's uh, it is um, there are lots of interesting things to to explore in that. And I um, I haven't got a copy now, but there's like a hip hop ed manifesto, and it kind of states loads of stuff. And anybody, I guess anybody who's into counterculture stuff or who feels that education could be used for a really good force for social change would be interested in that, even in mm-hmm. like the music. Yeah. So anybody, for example, who was into punk would agree with a lot of the stuff that hip-hop is, spouses, for example. Yeah.
0: yeah. I mean, also, it's, it's just making me think of um, stuff I've talked about with Yusuf in terms of the sociology of education and emancipatory education and things like that. It's, uh, yeah, and controlling the narrative the, the power of narrative and, and community as well. Um, I like that a lot. So, I mean, I, I could just take us down a colder side talking about Tupac and Biggie, but yeah. I won't.
1: <laughs> I won't do
0: that. Um, your your books about leadership. I wonder if, kind of thinking back over your life, you could kind of tell me your earliest memory or experience of being a leader. Using your mind now, so you might kind of not yeah. realize it at the time.
1: Um good good question. Uh I think I was games captain at school. <laughs> so yeah, I went to a girls' school in South West London, South West London, sorry, like Sutton, basically. Um yeah, I think I was games captain. That's probably the first time I was a leader of some type. I probably would have had to be voted to be it, so something like that or like prefect something along those lines at school no no it's before that computer monitor (laughs) okay (laughs) I was computer monitor in my middle school
0: I must have been like 10 so what did that involve?
1: (laughs) Um, what it involved was uh, making sure Basically, you could go to the computer room, because this was back in the day. yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> There was so, a room, yeah. Yeah,
1: in the 90s, it was kind of like, they'll so, say so there was a, a computer room, only just in the 90s, because, yeah, it would have been 10. Um, and... Uh, people were allowed to go in there and break or whatever it is so we had to make sure it was fair so that people could go on but what it really meant like the whole reason I wanted to do computer monitors was because I could let my friends on yeah? yeah and also I could go there and do what I wanted to do as well so it was just a nice way of having the space that I could chill mm-hmm. um, let my friends in and uh, chuck out anyone I wasn't feeling
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean and that, that's a great that's a great little uh, encapsulation of power because you were like I want this power so I can abuse this yeah, power exactly. yeah exactly so bad <laughs> <laughs> I to be computer monitor. Um,
1: oh my god! I love my little badge as well on my on my tie. I was the loving badge, it. yeah. <laughs> Mona It was yellow. I can remember it now. This is oh my god! My keys. <laughs> my mom's probably still got it. You know how moms love to keep
0: things. Yeah. yeah. Boy, 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 boy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> She's probably still got it.
0: Mm. I was thinking about mine. Is probably in year nine. I want to say. Starting the anti bullying club in school. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Just because I suppose yours is more, you know, you had control of this space, but I suppose mine is different because it was like, I feel like there's a need and the school's not doing anything about it. So can I do something about it? I think I talked about that in my interview to be an Ed psych, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that I really like about your book is that it, it kind of talks about um, leadership from lots of different perspectives. And um, I, was, I was listening to another podcast today actually about, it's, um, it's really cool. It's called Matter Fiction. I'll put the correct name in the notes, but it's, it's a group of um, designers and organisational uh, psychologists talking about fiction in relation and analyzing like the, the kind of systems and, and processes at play in it. And they were talking about Game of Thrones. I love and so Game they were So Game oh of Thrones is epic. Oh my god,
1: I love this show.
0: And they were talking about the different types of leadership across Game of the is main us so,
1: so um the first time I ever saw Game of Thrones, so to give you some background, I basically don't watch anything at all. Like Game of Thrones is the only thing that I watch, really. So apart from, like, films, I don't watch any TV shows. Game of Thrones is the one true one. So it's got to be good if I'm going to waste some time on it, right? Yeah. The way I got into Game of Thrones is because my cousin um told me about this show. And uh, he was like, Aisha, you're going to love this. You've got to watch it. So um, this was just before... just before our daughters were born. So uh, that'd be, like, 2013-ish. And he was like, "Are oh, you're going to love this show. And he described it to me. So if you've not seen Game of Thrones and someone describes it, it sounds dead. So it's kind of, he's just like, well, there's dragons. So he said, oh, Game of Thrones. I'd heard a bit about it. Mm. Um, so it'd been out maybe like one or two seasons. I was like, I was just like, that Lord of the Rings thing? No. <laughs> no, no, no. He said, no, 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 watch it. You will love it. Like, it's politics basically. Mm. And I was just like, it's fantasy in theres Dragons, just shut up yourself mm. basically. <laughs> so we went on holiday to um, Istanbul. Um, so it's like my kind of, Last bit of holiday before we had to, before we had some more kids, so I was like, "Yeah, go with things." So I went up for my cousin, went on holiday, and he, we streamed it in our hotel room while we were chilling. So he's like, "Oh, look, watch the first episode of this and see what you think of it." Did I not watch four in a row? It yeah. <laughs> was like, that like four hours. Later. <laughs> literally, I was up to a free. Yeah. So I was like, "Oh my god!" And it was so good that when I came back now. I uh, when we were, when I got back home I said to my partner, look, you've got to watch this. So I basically finished the whole season when we were on holiday. Uh-huh. We were only there like three, four days on killed., Day. Yeah, you didn't see any of this time. Oh my god. Every night I came back in, so we'd been like, out every night and like putting the rest of the night <laughs> <laughs> so I rewatched the whole thing again because oh, wow. it was that like, good with my partner but I wanted nice. to keep up with it, right? Ah, uh, because then you Yeah, goes, okay. then we could watch it. So then that's how I got into Game of Thrones. But it's basically politics. Yeah, totally. that's it like it's kind of it's politics with a few other weird little bits and pieces on but if you love kind of psychology like you must love it
0: love it so much
1: um, how people think the use of power Game of Thrones so my favourite thing before that used to be The Wire I think Game of Thrones might be better it's possible hmm.
0: okay so I think I've got to wait until the end of season 8 series 8 in. let me okay let me to comment yeah but I hear I hear where you're going it's I just so complex.
1: Saying. There's so much
0: going on. It, so it's
1: kinda of, they're definitely on a path.
0: Yeah. It's it's tough I to I can't say. imagine how they're gonna finish it. I've no idea. I'm like, you've got one series to finish it. There's so many threads. Yeah, I don't know. they're gonna have to they're gonna
1: have to some amazing writing to tie up all the ends because there's yeah. still a lot of loose ends. I can't see how it's gonna come up. But Game of Thrones is just
0: the one. <laughs> but so the way that they're talking about it on this podcast is you've got Cersei, who is, you know, authoritarian. You've got Jon Snow, who's reluctant, you know, a reluctant leader. All the time, he's like, oh, do I have to do another great leader thing? Okay, I'll do it. Then you've got Daenerys, who's, I suppose, benevolent in the sense that she's like, I do want power and I'll mess you up to get it, but it is for this vision of breaking the wheel. So they, and I hadn't ever thought about like that, And so, yeah, they were coming at it from a kind of political point of view and it, it, made me think very much of your work actually because of the way that you approach leadership with these human stories and you as a result are kind of describing different types of leadership and leaders
1: basically I haven't I wrote the book that I needed to have (laughs) yeah I wish (laughs) I had when I was kind of in schools and was a school leader um because a lot of leadership books I feel are quite bland um and you know it's for school leaders is people sit in schools, but it would probably work for people who are in other industries as well. Mm. Um, Because you're really... uh, I think I'm talking about the people behind the title. So I'm humanising leaders. um, Because it's so abstract, I think, like a lot of writing about business and leadership. Mm. And it's it's so abstract, so it's not to mean that much. You know, like people are supposed to put all their... Own thoughts and fears and insecurities and background to one side, and then be this kind of just like I don't know, um, leader in a box, mm. I guess. <laughs> and it's just yeah. it's not like that when you get talking to people uh, honestly, who you trust or who trust you. That's not what I hear people talking about. It's kind of they're not the things that I was thinking about when I was leading people. Um, or like a senior manager, then that's not necessarily it, because that stuff's quite easy. Leadership is really about people, mm. and there's very little when you become a school leader about how to actually manage people. Yeah, There's a lot about how to try and get people to do the thing you want or blah, 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 but there's not a lot about understanding yourself and also other people, which mm. actually is the main thing you need to do. A lot of the technical stuff is easy. You can teach someone that in no time. That's my view mm. about it.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think I had quite a lucky introduction to the idea of leadership because one of my first jobs was uh, an internship at the Claw Social Leadership Programme. Oh, cool. That was in um, January 2010, no, like April 2010, just before I started some institute for Tees First. And uh, so I met Mary Marsh, who's this amazing uh, person, and she was really real. And and she was kind of at that point coming up with a lot of the, I suppose, like mantras of the program. And, and the one that really stuck in my head was you've got to be yourself, know, know yourself, be yourself, and look after yourself. And so then I get plunged into Teach First, which is this really high pressure, you know, fast-paced environment. Yeah, but, sink or swim. But those words are ringing in my ears. And and so actually when I was in school in September I was really primed to look after myself and it meant that you know I I think I'm high highly conscientious but also I was like this is this is my limit you know and and I think it was really lucky because obviously I still saw people around me being like just giving it everything and and unfortunately you know lots of jobs are never ending but education is especially hard because you know the faces of the children that will you know not benefit as much they could have done otherwise but um, yeah I really valued that as a way to like start the world of work properly I think Mm. Um, yeah and she she was an amazing leader for me I remember um, she she got me to go to the times giving list breakfast or something it's like a philanthropic event So I rock up and I'm like, wow, there's a really good breakfast here. like Lots of different types of croissant, all of this stuff. And uh, so I'm there, you know, like eating and there's some people around. So I go and talk to some people while I'm eating. And then as I'm leaving, I realised there are all these amazing people there that I could have talked to, you know. And I left and I I went back to the office and she was like, oh, you know, I wonder, was so-and-so there? And I was like, oh, yeah, they were there, but... I didn't mean to to talk to them and then I was like, oh, you know, so-and-so, these funders that we were going to get in contact with were there and she was like, oh, right, did you, and I was like, oh, no, and she just went, you missed a trip there, said nothing more about it, but it literally just caught me and I was like, oh, yeah, I totally didn't prepare properly, but she didn't make me feel bad, she didn't, she just gave me the, you know, the, the exact right amount of guidance at the right amount of time and, uh, yeah, and it was really, literally for the next five years, I just changed what I did meetings. So, <laughs> oh. um, I was reading up about who was there. I was thinking, I was preparing what I might want to say to them. I, I, no, no I ate before every breakfast meeting. I wasn't eating at breakfast meetings, because I realised people don't eat at breakfast meetings. Yeah, uh, but at that point I was like, "It's a free breakfast." So I'm gonna eat. <laughs>
1: your breakfast meal was actually
0: for breakfast. Yeah, yeah. I was like, <laughs> you know, it's all, it's all laid out there. Um, so yeah, she, she's one of the the leaders that kind of stick in my mind as a good leader or was good for me. Do you have any that you kind of do you admire the the kind of workings of? Or? Yeah.
1: So. Um, uh, so obviously like each of the people I interviewed, I admire them in different ways. Um like the story that probably resonates especially with me is um Leela's story. Uh just because she, somebody became like a head teacher later in life, um via you know, took an interesting route and but she's like quietly sure of who she is. And I love that. Like I love her um confidence. But, like, she wasn't always like that. Mm. Uh, And it was lovely to hear her story, like, as somebody who wouldn't necessarily have put herself forward. Um, But also the thing that I really took from her is, I think, the thing about leadership and just people in general or, you know, is it situational? Um, You can be someone who, in one particular situation, is a great leader. And in another one, not so much. And I think we do... um, so there's a lot of hype about individual people as leaders, but not much recognition of the fact that there's a lot of other factors at play. Yeah. So, you know, there's their team around them, for example, there's a really good, if you like podcasts, there's um, a podcast called Masters of Scale, which is a great podcast. And there's one that's especially about, I can't remember what the title of it is, but it's around that, how, you know, people who are any performers, sometimes when they move, they're not. Mm-hmm. So what's different, you know, um, like I experienced that. So it's kind of in one context, you know, I was really good and well-respected. I've like the same, and you know, with a different boss. Suddenly I was different. Mm. Uh, and then moving to a different school with different perception again, where I'm the same person all the time with the same skill sets. Yeah. You know? And that can be quite... Um, puts you off a little, I think. Uh, mm. Especially, you know, you've done something like Teach First. I think Teach First has a very particular style of person who's attracted to it, right? So mm. it's kind of quite alpha, quite kind of high-achieving, used to that kind of style. Mm. Um, so... If you're that kind of person, you're used to being good, right? You yeah. don't want to be rubbish. No, you're used true. to being good. You're competitive. Generally speaking, people have been to an elite university. And if they haven't, they've got a really, really good degree. You know, they, it attracts a particular kind of person, right? So you're used to success. Um, and then when you don't have it, or you don't feel like you're someone who's successful, or you don't feel like you're doing well, it can really hit you. Mm. Um, and that's quite hard. I think, if you've never experienced that before. Um, but the thing that I read away from Lila's story is the fact that, you know, sometimes like you do need to look at yourself and see how it is. But actually, sometimes a place is just not right for you. Yeah, A place is not right for you or you're not right for a place. And as a result, like there's no shame in saying that. There's yeah. no shame in knowing that it's just not the right kind of environment and, mm. and you need to move. And that's the message that I really wish that I had known. Um, like I, I have a better understanding now of the kind of places I need to work in yeah. and what places I thrive and which ones I don't um, yeah and that's something I think that some people know innately and other ones you, you don't necessarily know that mm-hmm. so like I, I know I spent too much time trying to mould myself to a particular thing and thinking that I wasn't good enough in a particular situation when actually yeah maybe I could have been better but I was never going to be what was required in that situation mm mm-hmm. Um, and also it just wasn't for me Whereas in other places I've threatened
0: Yeah, yeah, so true In the the Game of Thrones podcast They talk about um, uh, Being a, like a monarch for war And a monarch for peace So they're like, well, you know, for example Cersei's always at war Even when it's peacetime And they were talking about, you know, would Daenerys be a good queen In peacetime, could she Like, does she have the right kind of attributes but I think, like, more broadly, I totally agree about, so before we started recording, we were talking about the um, the model that the IOE showed me uh, when they were talking about the ed psych training. Mm. And it's called, Bronf- well, the, the person is Bronfenbrenner and, and it's called an ecological model. And it has this person at the centre of these different systems and each system kind of influences their development. And it's so true that, you know, depending on, the, the social context or the people around you, you're going to have different experiences and you're going to be able to contribute in different ways um, I, 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 I think like it intuitively made sense to me and it it kind of annoys me that a lot of the narratives we hear about leadership so you know when I was doing education startup stuff, you, know, you hear about founders entrepreneurs and these these narratives are all about okay, what did so and so do to become in successful? And you get these like blueprints handed down. Just do this with, and there's no acknowledgement of the mediating variables of luck, for one, but also of context and timing. So you know you could copy Steve Jobs blueprint to the to the you know to, to the everything, but you're a different person in a different context with different stakeholders or investors or whatever. Uh, so it's not going to go the same way. Um, so I feel that something that the book does really well is kind of gives you an insight into the human side of, of leadership. I think you might have even said that mm. earlier on in the conversation, mm. but it really does. Um, now it's out there. How do you feel about it?
1: <laughs> I feel relieved. <laughs> I think um, I've never written a book before. so the process of being published is a long one. Yeah. And also, you know, like I mentioned to you about uh when I got first approached about writing the book, it was years ago. I was like maybe four or five years ago. And originally they wanted to do something around a kind of uh, like my mental health project basically, because I think they were attracted to the images and the story. But um when we played around with it we couldn't the publisher didn't feel that it was commercial enough it, because it's an educational publisher that it's going to they couldn't quite work out the angle. And you mentioned um, timing. So at that time, there wasn't a lot about mental health in schools. Yeah, it's kind of now it's everywhere. But at that time, it wasn't something that people were talking about a great mm-hmm. deal. Not for not for teachers, so it always has been for kids, but not for teachers. So it was like, oh, we can't really see a market, which is ironic because now,
0: yeah, it's yeah,
1: market. It was, yeah. And it's, <laughs> in essence, like, without realizing it, I've also written a book because I mental off. Like I didn't mean to, but I kind of yeah, have, true. um, in a way, but just in a different kind of way. To to that, like, I couldn't see how it's going to work. So, um, yeah, like I missed two or three deadlines for this manuscript because first time I didn't really know what I was going to write so I um, put in a few samples and they were like, it's good but we can't see where it's going to go, da, da, da. then the person who was there, I don't know what you call it in publishing but like in music it would be like the A&R person basically so the person who kind of looks out for new authors and kind of mm-hmm. does all that stuff And um, she left, so I was off kind of doing my own thing, thinking I don't really know what I'm going to write and then by the time I thought of an idea I emailed her but she wasn't working at the company anymore and they've got quite strict rules about how they can interact with people in case they kind of take them off to another publishing house okay. um, so then I had to kind of like reacquaint myself with somebody who was at the publishers and also kind of persuade them that I was worth taking a chance or they didn't know me they didn't have a relationship mm-hmm. with me like she did so that was all long. <laughs> and then by then I'd worked out kind of what I wanted to write about. Like I knew it had to be a book about leadership and I knew that there'd be one chapter that would specifically be about introverted leaders because that was something that I was interested in. And I kind of like did a bit of a mapping out of it. So this process was taken a long time and then I kind of, for ages put off starting to write it because like how do you write a book I don't know <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> page know? one go ahead. yeah like I'm not, a, I'm not a writer it's kind of I um at that time I think because consider myself a writer I I was a math teacher who'd been an engineer um and like the last kind of long piece thing I've written would be my dissertation which was basically a load of tables about you know whatever um Fluid uptake in certain materials, or something like that. Yeah. So it's kind of, it's very technical writing is a very different kind of
0: thing. <laughs> Your so, whole voice changed, even
1: saying yeah. oh, it's <laughs> You know, something like that. So <laughs> it wasn't exactly the kind of thing. So before that, I've, I think the longest thing I'd written before that would be for Hip Hop Ed, actually. Okay. So I'd written a, um, an essay about what was it called? fear and loathing in hip hop, and I'd done it via. Um Exploring Notorious B.I.G.'s Ready to Die album
0: No yeah. Can I
1: read this? Yeah, yeah I'll send you a link to oh it Oh my gosh Um. So Yeah, that's probably one of the pieces of writing I'm most proud of actually I just I sat down and wrote it I can't remember why I was joking with Darren about it one time He's like, oh, you should write something So I just sat down one time in our lounge And wrote it <laughs> okay. And then I started getting into it And I just kept writing, kept writing, mm. kept writing So yeah, I'll send you a link to it but that's probably the, lo- the longest thing I've written Um, before that and that's just for yourself right so um, this is a long way of me saying that it took me a long time to write this book Mm -hmm. Um, but other people who are more into writing it might not have taken so long but the overall process was several years Mm -hmm. Uh, so now that it's out I feel yeah like I finally finished the thing
0: yeah yeah it's it's physical
1: yeah and it's it's nice to kind of see what people make of it and uh, yeah it's good to have it out in the world and I hope that it I hope that it helps people. Basically, I hope that someone will read it, and it's what they needed to read at that time, and yeah, it will help them in their own professional journey. Like I really do hope that. That's how I wrote it, as if the like I wrote it as if I'd write it to me a few yeah, years ago. Uh, yeah, I like that. Yeah, or kind of, or I could envisage people that I knew who needed to read this book. So mm. it's kind of, it's quite personal in some respects, but it's kind of I don't know. I feel like they're the books that that's the kind of book that would have touched me. Mm-hmm. So, it's it's quite weird, because like someone reading it would know quite a lot about me, um, that I wouldn't normally have spoken to somebody about on first meeting them, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's quite an interesting one. Like my mum read the book, because you know your mum's in it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so my mum read it, because she's my biggest chili you know them. Um, and my mum, her first, so she read the introduction, no, the, pre- the preface, and she goes, did you have to put that in there? Because you know, my like, mums want to protect you right so she was like is it going to damage your you know is it are people going to think badly of it because she wants to present the best thing um which is precisely why i didn't really show it to anybody that knew me personally mm. when i was writing it because i knew if i did that i would filter i'd filter it and it'd become more like a presenting myself in the best life yeah, which is yeah. not really what it's about so i explained to her like why i put it in and now she's like kind of read a bit more she's like oh it totally makes sense i really understand why you put mm. it um, but her first instinct is to kind of want to protect me as a, as a daughter.
0: And that's how you know it's important. I Like, there's an interesting dynamic there because, and I mean, now, now you're an artist, I suppose. Because yeah. you, you've written something, you're a writer. Um, but the public will have this privileged understanding of you because you've put parts of yourself in the book, which is interesting to me because it makes me think of my friend who um, he was big in the UK hip hop scene uh, in the mid 2000s and he actually has a really uh, interesting complicated relationship with that now he doesn't really like me to know about it um, but he always used to talk about he'd be at shows and people come up to him and say these like really detailed descriptions of stuff they knew about him and it was really Weird for him because he, you know, he's quite vulnerable, and um, and I, and he he's now a designer, and he, the reason I asked about how you feel about the book is because he goes through these long processes of creating something, puts it out into the world. And as soon as it's out there, he's like, oh, I don't know if that because it's a long process represents what I, you know, feel anymore, yeah. or um, you know, and so yeah, I suppose it, it kind of. It is of its time, right? Yeah. But um, I wonder if you're thinking about any other creative projects.
1: Yeah, I don't know. It's it's interesting you should say that because the me in the book is me, but it's not the current me. Like I I can read it with a detachment now Mm -hmm. because um, even like talking about how slow the publishing process is. So at the point that I ended the book, uh, so probably the last bit I properly wrote was sometime last year the bulk of the book was written by summer last year and then there were like, uh, edits, never-ending edits and blah, blah, blah. So probably the last thing I actually wrote for it might have been December um, and even then when I reread the I mean, I could have been rewriting this book now because there are bits where I'm slightly different as mm. a person and um, thinking about what prompted me to write particular things or to include particular chapters, I'm in such a different place, which I think I kind of outlined in the introduction or the preface kind of uh, the reason why I needed to write the book is now different. So, in terms of, it's still useful for other people, but I'm different, yeah. and that's interesting. So, it's a bit, it's almost like a photo, like it's a snapshot in time of me as a person. So, it's interesting to look at it and think, oh yeah, that was, yeah, that's how I, I remember why I needed to write that, and feeling quite detached and like I definitely grown mm. as a person through the process and just understanding, oh yeah, like, like this is part of what I needed to do to be who I am yeah. now. And I'm, I'm proud mm-hmm. of it, but also there are things where if I were writing a particular chapter again, I might have written something different. Like, I think I think yeah. differently about work-life balance now, for example. Um, I think my thinking has evolved in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the other bits, it's it's interesting. that like, There's stuff there that I haven't, you know, that I've never publicly written or spoken about. Mm-hmm. Um, like, it's all fine. I've all dealt with it and stuff like that, but it's kind of, it's the first time it would be in there. Or there are things there that my mum read that she didn't know that are quite significant things, mm. I wouldn't have spoken to her about it, or people who know me very well wouldn't know it. So that's quite interesting, that people who know me, who've read it, uh, were like, oh, why didn't you say about that? Like, oh, we didn't know that was going on with you, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's quite, it's exposing, and I would imagine musicians have something similar, because, you know, a lot of musicians write quite personal stuff. Um, but I think, I think the kind of art that touches me is stuff where it's clear that it's, people are being real, really. Mm. I think that's it. So, yeah, I think that's how I know that it's done what I needed to do.
0: Mm -hmm. If people
1: I know are just like... (laughs) Not in a sensationalist way, but just in a, okay, no, it's it's real enough. Mm.
0: But that's what I meant when uh, I said this. That's how you know it's important because Mm. if you're putting stuff out there that people wish you'd said at the time or your mum is a bit worried about to me, that's a barometer of well, it, it needs to be said then, and other people will find it valuable. Um,
1: I wrote to my editor, and like when we were trying to work out like the tone of the book, and I remember I sent an email that said something like, "It needs to be X, Y, Z, and I want to write the kind of book where, um, like, it's so honest that I'm scared to send it to you." <laughs> something like that, or I am a bit scared to press send. That's
0: kind of deep, yeah. Um,
1: because, um, you know, I no longer have any control over that thing. know, mm. um, Within the bounds of not oversharing or whatever it is, but just kind of that I'm actually thinking, oh, you know, should I have included that thing mm. or whatever? Um, and that's the kind of book that I wanted to write because they're the kind of books that have changed my life, basically. Mm. They're the kind of books... I don't want. There's a lot of you know generic leadership books out there. I don't want to write that book. Yeah, just someone else can write that book. Yeah, yeah, it it's just just someone else house. Yeah, <laughs> many times, many times, <laughs> <laughs> Pure few, times. <laughs> <laughs> it's true.
0: Yeah, yeah it's so true. Um, so where can people find out about you? Uh,
1: they can find out about me at AishaSmall.com. So that's I E S H A Small. S-M-A-L-L dot com, so that's kind of I write a blog from time to time and I write about various things so kind of education, leadership life uh, yeah, so that's where you can find out about me um, and um, yeah, that's the main bit, I suppose I'm on Twitter, same thing, so at Aisha Small I'm sporadic with Twitter, so sometimes I'm just like, yeah, I'm on it, and a lot of times I'm like I hate this thing <laughs> I hate social media, <laughs> I hate it <you>. all <laughs> no, one's like So, it just depends what mood I'm in. Um, I think it's a useful tool, but I sometimes think it's also not very good for people's mental health. So, Mm -hmm. I have a bit of a love hate relationship with Twitter. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: But yeah, creatively, I've met lots of interesting people via it. Uh, But I also am aware that it can be super addictive. So, yeah, they're the kind of two main places, and uh, the unexpected leaders at Amazon. Um, And yeah, that's it.
0: We so there was so much there and it was a real pleasure to talk to Aisha today. If you want to contact her, you can find the details in the show notes alongside those of mine and The Sizzle. I love you to subscribe, share this with people that you think might find it useful in education or further afield because I want to help keep this movement growing. And subscribe to the new Twitter handle at the Pod on Twitter, where I'm sharing all the news and little bits about the episodes and guests that we talk to as well. All right, see you next time. This is a-